Welcome to the third season of That's So Second Millennium, the Catholic science podcast where we explore the fascinating borderlands between science and theology through realms of philosophy, human experience, and more. Welcome back to episode 130 of That's So Second Millennium. This episode, we have the privilege of talking to Natasha Talgramagian, who is a PhD student at Harvard University in geophysics. So as you might imagine, I enjoy this conversation a lot. We get to uh, geek out about uh, the specifics of geoscience quite a bit. And then we also have an interesting conversation about what we see as uh, some of the spiritual ramifications of our of our own discipline. It is, of course, as I say, great for me to get the chance to, to talk to her. And she is... Uh, She's a wonderful person with a lot of interesting perspective. So I hope you enjoy this conversation anywhere near as much as I do, because if you did, you'll enjoy it quite a bit. Here she is. Welcome back to That's So Second Millennium. We are very pleased to have Natasha Togramagian on the podcast today. She's a PhD student at Harvard University, and she studies geophysics. Her research focuses on improving our understanding of hazardous active faults and the earthquakes that they cause, as well as anticipating the three-dimensional ground motions that will occur during future large earthquakes. She spent a year in Armenia on a U.S. Fulbright research grant designing a statistical seismology study on reservoir-triggered earthquakes, aiding in the deployment of over 100 new seismic stations across the Caucasus Mountains and investigating how international scientific collaboration is shaped by regional politics in a region where that is very fraught. Um, she has led several experimental field studies on the Seattle Basin and Fault Zone and is creating new three-dimensional fault models of one of Southern California's most dangerous earthquake sources, and that's saying something in Southern California. Her research is supported by the NSF Graduate Research Fellowship, and she's a student member of the Society of Catholic Scientists, and she was a speaker at the 2021 Society of Catholic Scientists uh, conference. So welcome to the podcast, Natasha. Thank you so much for uh, joining us. Thank you for having me. It's exciting to be here. Yeah. So, uh, so let's get down to, let's start with a, a little bit maybe about yourself. If you'd, uh, um, so you're, you're a podcast or postdoc as opposed to podcast. There we go. Different P word. Um, uh, you're, you're a, a postdoc at Harvard or no, you're a PhD student at Harvard. I apologize. Um, and that's, <laughs> neither, neither one of those tend to be slouches. So, uh, if you could give us a little background on, uh, on your path to get there, that would be great. How, where, where were you from? You know, at what point did you go in the direction of geophysics and all of that? Yeah. Um, so I'm from a suburb of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And I think mm-hmm. like a lot of people who are earth scientists today, as a kid, I was always into rock collecting, walking around in the woods, tramping about, looking at dirt and plants. So then fast forward to college, I attended Boston College and I started out in physics because um, I was just very interested and it seemed like a a pretty direct key to the universe in a way. Um, but after a while, I felt a, a visceral urge to spend more time outside. So I made my way to the earth science department, looked at a few classes, and from there, that, that's sort of history. I ended up in geology and geophysics. Um, I did want to find a way to marry the geology and the physics, and that, of course, is geophysics. Um, but particularly compelling to me was the fact that geophysics has this pretty strong um, like direct path to address one of the 
more terrifying aspects of being a human, which is earthquakes. And again, that, <laughs> that plays out <laughs> in different places. So in a place like Pennsylvania, it's not something we really deal with, but um, other places, it's a really life-defining aspect of, of living there. Then I had a lot of great field experiences throughout college. I was living in New Mexico and Guatemala and Armenia for different summers, um, meeting a lot of different people and communities who share, who again, all these very diverse communities are tied to each other in the fact that they experience geological hazards. And that's one of the most um, compelling aspects to me of earth science, again, is how it unites us as inhabitants of this planet. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. Of course, you know, you're preaching to the choir here because of course I'm a, I'm a mineralogist, right. but nevertheless, I'm also a geoscientist and all that. So. Right. <laughs> It's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. We, we're all, uh, the earth is something we all have in common. We, we have very, very few of us have spent any significant time away from it at this point in human history. Yeah, anyone else. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so, um, so you, so you work on seismology at Harvard. Um, do you have, I mean, you've mentioned Armenia and, and, and um, both in the introduction that, uh, you know, you've, you've done work there and, and you've talked about visiting there. Do you have Armenian uh, ancestry? I do not. So my husband's Armenian. Okay. The there you go. Okay. Okay. Um, but he's American Armenian. So we met in college um, and we both ended up doing research there. Okay. At the same time, but no ancestry. Okay. Um, so what does, uh, what does he do? So he uh, he's currently in law school and he's okay. doing a joint degree in urban planning. Um, okay. okay. And his research there was focusing on the Syrian Armenian refugees who were coming from Aleppo after the um, war that was there in the early 2010s. Yeah. Wow. Um, how they could reintegrate um, again because they're ethnically Armenian, but they were expelled from historic Armenia with the Armenian genocide in 1915. Right. So yeah. fled to Syria. And then they were sort of expelled again. So it's half a homecoming, but half a, you've never lived there, but you should have this uh, sort of cultural tie and you do share the language, even if it's dialectically different. So yeah. who's working on that? That's, 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 that's a powerful traumatic experience to, to go, go through again. I mean, with, you know, their, their families probably carrying some, some of the residual effects of the genocide, which yeah, one of history's awful, awful episodes. Right. Yeah. Um, well, let's, um, I'd certainly want to, uh, for the listeners who haven't had the chance to, uh, to experience your talk, I would certainly recommend to everyone to go to the society of Catholic scientists website and look up the 2021 conference and, and watch the video of your talk because it was a great and fascinating talk as, as they mostly were. Um, it was a great conference. So I'd like to talk a little bit about the subject matter as an introduction to that and sort of encouragement for people. Um, so there was, as I recall, you know, there, you know, from looking at my notes and, and remembering the talk, there were, there were two major elements that I came away with. One was that, um, Catholic, uh, priests and Jesuits in particular were responsible for creating one of the great, um, seismic networks in the, in the early to mid 20th century, um, which is something that very few people really understand as, as something that Catholics have contributed to specifically, and then also, you know, again, talking a lot about the, the history of large lethal earthquakes. Um, so do you want to uh, maybe elaborate on that a little bit for the benefit of our listeners? 
Yeah, so you're right. Um, the Jesuits were actually responsible for developing the first continent-wide scale um, seismographic network in the U.S., um, in North America. Um, and before that, that was largely in the early 20th century through the mid-20th century. But before that, they had established seismographic stations on the, on the furthest flung corners of the earth, from Madagascar to Beirut to places in China, the first seismometer in Ireland. And a lot of this came directly out of the Jesuit sensibility of sort of being God's Marines, taking the Christ's message to the really the frontiers in many aspects. Um, and they also had a very strong educational emphasis. And to do their educational outreach, they had to be practice experts themselves. So they, um, since their founding in the 1500s, quickly became uh, very skilled in seafaring, navigation, military science, mathematics, physics. Um, so all these things sort of in confluence led to them being very geographically dispersed, um, very scientific, scientifically oriented, and they established most of the first um, natural observatories in many places in the world. So fast forward to North America, the early 1900s, there are a few Jesuit colleges established in the United States, um, and they found themselves uniquely primed to take on this this very necessary um, mm -hmm. sort of charge of duty in seismology at that moment, because particular to seismology, well, particular to instrumental science, you need to have well-calibrated instruments recording signals at different places in order to use those signals in concert. So yeah. they knew we already have this network everywhere from Spokane to Ohio to Washington, D.C. So um, they scraped together their funding and established North America's first seismic network. Yeah. And, and that's, uh, yeah, that's, it's one of those things that it's in some ways is sort of the dirty work of science, you know, doing, doing the work of getting, you know, building out the infrastructure in order to do really systematic stuff. And then, you know, once you have that, you have the ability to do things you just couldn't before. But yeah, I mean, yeah. I remember, you know, 20 some years ago when I was an undergraduate, you know, studying seismology and, and hearing about, you know, the Jesuits and I think Chile came up because of course, you know, Chile is mm -hmm. on a massive, massive subduction zone with violent, violent earthquakes. A very handy place to have seismometers <laughs> if you want to understand the earth and, and its processes. Um, and then, you know, I think you, I think you opened the talk, as I recall, with a discussion of the great Lisbon earthquake. Was that in the 18th century? Right. Yeah. Right. In 1750, 1755, 1750. Yeah. Um, just so, do, do you want to just talk a little bit about, you know, the, the dangers, you know, because earthquakes have obvious dangers, you know, the earth moves, buildings collapse, people die, but there's also sort of less obvious dangers as well. Yeah, I mean, we can start with the Lisbon earthquake, which was termed uh, modern Europe's first sort of natural disaster. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Europe had made it into this modern age. It was in the Enlightenment, 1755. People felt like they had established some healthy distance from the, the primitive fears. But then in um, Lisbon, Portugal, on All Saints Day, a massive earthquake struck. And... It was offshore, so what happened is not only the earthquake struck, and again, All Saints Day, so everyone was in church, they were praying, they were worshiping, they were gathering on this high Catholic holiday. Um, earthquake tore down all these churches and buildings, but then an offshore earthquake with significant vertical offset generates a tsunami. Tsunami comes inland, so it feels like this cataclysm 
houses yeah. and churches are set on fire as they fall. And it, the city was on fire for days. So it was a very much a sense of reckoning with the natural world, um, how much power it has and how helpless we can feel in the face of it. Um, so there was a lot of philosophical and theological response. Um, and a lot of the Enlightenment thinkers actually echoed what we find in the gospel in terms of how people respond to sort of senseless tragedies that really have no reasonable explanation. Um, mm -hmm. There's a, a story in the gospel where some Jews are in Jerusalem and they're coming and they're worshiping and they're praying. They're being very devout and mm -hmm. a tower just falls on them and kills all of them. And yeah. <clears throat> the disciples are really grappling with this. They're like, how come God punish these people who are doing exactly what he wants? And Christ says, well, that's the whole point. There's no, there's no granted access to a perfect life, no matter what you do. Like, we're destined to die. So in the same way we had, um, Kant echoing this, probably without meaning to, Voltaire, Rousseau, <laughs> they're saying, you know, how, how could it be that this benevolent God, how can we say that the babies who are killed in Portugal are more sinful than those that live in London? And that, right. that illuminates some of the truths of our Catholic belief and how we grapple with natural disasters. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing how we have to sort of solve these theological problems for ourselves over and over again. That you know, generations right. you know, so easily forget right. what 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 people have gone before have already already had to had to grapple with. Um, right. Yeah, I mean, and of course, you know, in the United States, sort of, you know, I think the greatest sort of or legendary earthquake is kind of. The, the 1906 San Francisco earthquake that was so incredibly destructive and, and of course struck a city that was built in, you know, very ramshackle 19th century fashion. And, you know, just the amazing dramatic stuff that happened like liquefaction and buildings, you know, sinking into, into, you know, fill or just wet soil, um, just incredible devastation. And, and again, fires, it, it always seems to happen that, you know, fires follow these um, with the, you know, any sort of uh, flammable material, be it gas or oil or what have you, you know, being upset and, you know, fire's already being, you know, some, something's already on fire because we use fire for so darn many things. And then, then it just rages out of control. And of course, and then we break water pipes. I mean, it's just, it's just, it really is, a, like you say, a cataclysm. Everything, everything snowballs. It's, it is, it is really an amazing, amazingly frightening thing to live through. Um, so being from Indiana and not having lived through one. <laughs> I mean, that um, infamous California earthquake in Northern California reminds me of a fault I'm working on currently in Southern California that is responsible for Southern California's most deadly earthquake, which happened in 1933. Uh, that was the Long Beach earthquake Long and Beach 120 earthquake. people were killed. Yeah. Um, and sort of why I'm working on this now is that it actually hasn't had a large earthquake rupture on it since. So we've seen seismology advance so far. Uh, we use regularly machine learning techniques to revisit historic catalogs, pick out earthquake signals that we weren't able to with more analog methods. Um, there's tons of diverse um, analytical approaches that we leverage. But with this fault in particular, which cuts right through downtown Los Angeles, some of the most densely populated neighborhoods um, running over 40 meters um, onshore, it hasn't had a large earthquake. So in a way, even though that's a good thing, it, it also means we have a lack of data. 
because as we've applied our new instruments and um, right. methods, we don't have some some source to illuminate the fault system that causes these earthquakes. And the geometry of a fault is uh, on the for first order related to the earthquakes it will generate. So um, that's something we're looking at now, sort of leveraging these a bit of an alternative set of methods and data sets to try to anticipate again the next large earthquake that will occur. Because like you mentioned, there's this generational memory where an earthquake is a great moment of reckoning. It's so terrible, so palpable. But mm -hmm. give it a few years and you forget. So if you don't have enough... Um, yes. Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Terrible, too. Yeah, it is. It is so amazing. The Earth, the Earth's time scale is not our time scale, and it is so hard for us to believe. You know, I, I, I was just rereading. Um, I'm a, you know, volcanology is closer to my area of expertise than um, uh, seismology, and and earthquakes are are by and large more deadly than volcanoes. But nevertheless, I was remembering. I was reading about so the area of Hawaii that um, you know was recently. Uh, hit by uh, eruptions. It's called Puna. That's you know east of Kilauea's summit. Um, in the fifties, it was covered by you know lava from several eruptions. Not you know entirely covered, but lots of it was. And people had you know within you know and the, and that was not that many decades after the previous the time before that. But people had convinced themselves that it was safe to build in all sorts of places that were obviously not safe to build. And you know there was you know there there was simply a question of at some point the volcano was going to erupt again in that area. Um, and likewise, you know, these places where we know there are faults, we know there's, you know, active faults and, and, you know, whether it's, and we're, of course, you know, we're hamstrung by the fact that science is so new and, you know, really it's, it's only been since the, you know, the 19th century that we've had historical records and the very late 19th to beginning of the 20th century that we've had instrumental records that help us in any significant extent, you know, that's just not a long enough, you know, that's just not enough data. That's just not enough right. data for us to really make accurate predictions. Right. Again, the geologic time scale, it's, we're just really sampling the snippet of it. Yeah. So, yeah, I know you do research on Seattle and that's another notorious area that, you know, well, it hasn't had an earthquakes in recorded history, but it's going to, <laughs> we just don't know when. Yeah. Right. Not an in instrumentally recorded history that did have an earthquake in 1700, which there's a very good, um, story behind. So uh -huh. Japan was a, a bit more advanced in um, uh, around the Pacific Ocean, recording large earthquakes that happened, and they, they would always have the earthquake. A tsunami would come in, depending on where the earthquake occurred, and so they would very diligently write down all of these things that happened. But in 1700, they had what they called the orphan tsunami, where they experienced no uh -huh. earthquake, and suddenly a tsunami came in from offshore, sure. inundated them. Yeah. They're very puzzled, but they wrote it down. And what happened, <laughs> yes. they turned out um, that earthquake happened on the Cascadia subduction zone, which is, uh -huh. again, what defines the tectonic setting around Seattle. And yes. there were Native American groups there in the Seattle area who preserved the happening of that earthquake in their, their oral folklore. So yeah. there's this tale that just the water filled the land and all of the canoes were swept away and all of the people were killed and there were these sort of frozen ghost forest, as they're described, but a forest that's so quickly inundated with water that it immediately dies, mm -hmm. deprived of oxygen. So these are um, preserved today, and they're a sort of field site that you can go to to look at earthquake history. 
But then a lot of coring was done offshore in the oceanic sediments um, off of the Cascadia subduction zone. And then they were able to pin down a bit of a recurrence interval for that kind of massive magnitude eight or nine subduction zone earthquake. And it's about every 250 to 300 years. So, mm. and it's been. <laughs> it's been about that long time. Yeah, let's so, check the calendar. Oh, wait. Oh, darn. <laughs> Yeah. Darn moment. So, yeah. Yeah. It, but exactly how it defines the sort of local sense of are we an earthquake environment? Are we not? It really depends on the tectonic setting. So, seeing how you how that plays off across um, different communities and cultures based on what exact segment of the tectonics they're experiencing. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's. I, I don't want to live to see it, but I'm afraid that I'm going to live to see it, to see what, to see what happens there. And, uh, um, another thing that's intriguing um, that, you know, actually you've, we, we, we mentioned it at the beginning that uh, you've worked on uh, reservoir-induced seismicity. Is that, mm-hmm. Did that make it into the introduction? That did, right. didn't it? Yeah. Yeah, well, I'll talk about that a little bit because I, I think that's something that people don't think about very much. Yeah, so um, I think a slightly more known um, human-caused or anthropogenic um, type of earthquake is induced seismicity with wastewater disposal. So, for example, Mm -hmm. people know in Oklahoma there was a huge uptick starting around 2009 with Mm -hmm. earthquakes occurring within the the center of a tectonic plate, a cold, hardened, supposedly inactive area in the tectonic sense. And there's been a lot of work to figure out that that is correlated with the disposal of wastewater. So if you have a fracking operation, a drilling operation, and you pull that water back out and dispose of it somewhere deep in the crust, it can activate um, ancient, previously inactive faults. Um, And so they have a friction built up on them, but if you lubricate them with an injected liquid, then they can slip. Then there's reservoir-triggered seismicity, which um, happens in a different kind of setting. So if you're in a place that does have critically stressed, tectonically active faults, for example, Armenia. Um, Armenia is part of the Caucasus Continental Collision Zone, so you have the Arabian Plate pushing up into Eurasia, building the Caucasus Mountains and triggering, well, causing um, regular earthquakes. So if you're in a place like that where you already have these critically stressed faults, Um, And then you impound a reservoir or build a dam and fill it with water. There's a few different mechanisms, but the water can trickle down um, through the crust and again lubricate faults, cause them to slip. The increased gravitational load can couple with tectonic stresses that are critical points and again induce an earthquake. So there was a large, uh, very destructive earthquake in Koina, India, that was magnitude five and a half about in the 50s. And that was really devastating just because it was in a densely populated area. Yeah. Um, yeah. So a 5.2 going off directly beneath the city can still be pretty destructive, especially in the fifties. Precisely. Right. And, and that's the thing with earthquakes. I mean, sometimes if you have a magnitude eight or nine happen out in the middle of nowhere, nobody mm-hmm. blinks an eye, except the scientists who are very interested. Yes. Uh, we saw that with the, the 2019 Ridgecrest sequence, which in California, sort of near the Mojave desert, this very large earthquake um, nucleated on a set of faults that had previously been largely unmapped. And so this large, massive, very complex earthquake occurred, but 
almost no one lived nearby it except the tiny town of Ridgecrest. So thankfully, it's yeah. one of those rare examples where um, it comes in the modern time. You can get so much data and understanding then about uh, Earth processes through it, but you don't have that um, terrible collateral damage. Yes. Versus a smaller earthquake if it happens right in a city. Yeah. It doesn't matter if it's not that big. Yeah. Yeah, that that fault that you mentioned uh, going under Los Angeles where the Long Beach earthquake happened, you know, a, a five and a half on that, you know, probably would would still be quite destructive. Certainly. Even today, not, not everything has been uh, built as well as we would like, even though, you know, construction codes have improved since the late 20th century. But yeah. Right. That, that's the Newport Inglewood fault, which if you talk to scientists in the field, it's it's much more of a hazard to Los Angeles than the San Andreas is. Yeah, yeah. The San Andreas has just got the name recognition. Right, the yeah. plate boundary. It's, it's it is a plate boundary. Down. You know, it's important. Yeah, it is, it is good yeah. to know where those are. As you say, but right. I mean, that's more of the, the scientific interest like we were mentioning. I mean, so, yeah, it is It is great to be able to have something like the Ridgecrest earthquake where nobody, nobody, had, to, nobody had to suffer. <laughs> we just got the information. It's great. <laughs> Right, that's the sort of perfect earthquake. Yeah, yeah. So it's like watching a volcano erupt, like, you know, off the shore of Iceland. And, oh, okay, look at that. That's fascinating. Fantastic. Right. And nobody's, right. and nobody's right. sheep got killed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or it forms a new island. You have those subsea surface volcanoes build a beautiful new um, island that happened in the 70s, the island of Surtsey. Surtsey, yeah. And it was just this wonderful scientific moment because it created this this priorly non-existing piece of land. So scientifically, they also had this natural laboratory to study how life populates land. Yeah. Um, became protected yeah. very quickly. Um, but that touches on an aspect, again, of the sort of Jesuit earth science intersection. Um, mm-hmm. Father James Scahan, who founded the department where I um, got my bachelor's in geophysics in Boston College, he got to go and lead this expedition for tens of scientists, uh, NASA representatives to that island. And he ended up celebrating the first ever mass on that island. Uh, A few scientists ended up wanting to be baptized. So that happened as well. But it was this very illuminating confluence of sort of natural harmony between how many different dimensions that we perceive God's wonders. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, it's, it's, you know, watching this sort of creative aspect of the earth at work, you know, seeing, seeing the sub creation as, as it were that, uh, the, the natural processes are, 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 are implementing, though I'm groping for words today. I apologize. Um, I mean, that's, that's also <laughs> just having a conversation earlier today, where I was commenting that, you know, I, I, I gravitate more toward, you know, the hard rock, obviously, you know, I'm enthusiastic about volcanoes and, and mineralogy. Um, you know, I, I, I was saying that it's, it's more in touch with God's creative side, you know, soft rock is, it's in the words of my uh, igneous petrology professor, it's when bad things happen to good rocks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> rocks have to suffer. You know, they weather, they get eroded, they get torn into pieces and chemically changed and hauled into a basin and re-cemented into a new rock. Um, they, have, they have to suffer a great deal. But yeah. Um, is there, like for you personally, um, 
how does your how does your faith and your life as a scientist sort of uh, what what points of contact do you have there? I mean, and frankly, what difficulties do you have? Well, there's a lot of strong motivation that does come from my faith, as we've thoroughly discussed. Earthquakes are just one of the more terrible aspects of humanity, not only because of in one fell swoop, how many lives are taken. I mean, you look at the death tolls of earthquakes and yeah. they can be in, often in the tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands. Yeah. yeah. It's just massive loss. Um, I mean, the, the, the all time champions are like earthquakes in China where half a million people died, I think. Yeah. I mean, China has terrible, terrible earthquakes. Um, and, and a lot of the living spaces are not built to handle them. So really a large loss of life. Um, and coupled with that is, again, the sense of how beyond us they are, how beyond our control, but also the geologic time scale. Just the factors that are at work and causing an earthquake are very uh, humbling to the human sensibility. So in the, in the Jesuit um, sense, you're sort of called to be men and women for others. That's what we mm-hmm. talked about a lot at Boston College as students. And so, again, if you can use your work to do something that improves the lives of others, that's generally a good thing. Um, but also there's a great mystery to the earth. I mean, it's it's our human home, but it's it predates all of our humanity. Just oh, yeah. The pure billions of years of age that it holds. And it's just this very endlessly deep way to explore God's creation. And I mean, we, we do a lot of belief in earth science too. For example, the earth's core, we've never seen it, but we believe it's there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there are reasons to believe it. it's there, but boy, yeah, we haven't, yeah. we haven't seen or touched it. Right. Right. And we have really well repeatable seismic waves that come, they're reflected and refracted. They travel through the earth's interior and they really indicate to us that, the presence of this solid inner core of the earth. Um, yeah. I think there's a bit of belief. There's, there's really a lot of mystery and um, like ways you need to apply your rational faculties that I see paralleled in faith yeah. that are in earth science. And um, for me, it's a, it's a very harmonious um, sort of enterprise, the way they come together. So, yeah. 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 I mean, it's something I reflect on frequently that it's not, you know, there can there can be a way of talking about faith. Um, I think I almost think I've heard you know Bishop Robert Barron you know criticize this heavily um, and justly I believe. Um, but there's a way of talking about faith, and, and it can be in Catholic circles and definitely in Protestant circles that we believe despite somehow you know despite logical evidence. And that's like I don't I don't think you can read the New Testament like what does Jesus say? It's like. I mean, if you don't believe me, I mean, believe the works that I'm doing, you know, look at what's going on and then judge for yourself. Um, right. But that's, yeah, that's not inconsistent with a scientific enterprise and this whole, you know, as they call it, the conflict hypothesis or the conflict, you know, outlook between science and religion is, is really artificial. And I mean, I think Chesterton said something mm-hmm. about you know, it being really bad. I mean, basically being bad scriptural ex- exegesis colliding with, you know, bad science at the same time. Right. Completely. Completely. And I mean, we, we have these rational faculty and that there's this idea that, you know, faith is quote unquote ancient and science is quote unquote modern. And it's right. No, 
the laws of physics, the laws of chemistry, our biological realities have been set in motion since the beginning. And yeah. the more we use science to uncover our, our reality is the better we're getting a little bit at understanding God's creation. But they're, they've all existed before our sort of you know, proud idea that we're figuring it all out. Um, right. And I mean, who, who was the theorizer of the Big Bang? It was Father George Lemaitre. Lemaitre, yes. Scientist. And yeah. the reason it was called the Big Bang was they were sort of making fun of him, this, this Big right. Bang. That got like so many things, yeah. We, we wind up sticking right. with the pejorative name that it got initially, the given, given by its enemies, yeah. Right, right. But he was one of the closest friends of Einstein, um, and they really worked out so much of our currently held theories on you know, the nature of our existence and earth and beyond. So yeah. to me, they're in complete harmony. And I think it's, it's a just sort of popular discourse these days to think that they're separate. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's fashion. It's, it's more like, you know, long running intellectual fashion and it's, right. I don't know, you know, in my own reading of history, I think, I think the, the, the people, you know, the giving scandal, you know, wealthy, corrupt, you know, bishops and prelates and, 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 you know, and aristocrats yeah. and Kings claiming to be Christian and, and not living that way that have, right. I mean, they've got a long, a long legacy and a lot that I think in their, you know, <laughs> from the perspective of eternal life, they realize I have a lot to answer for, I think, unfortunately. Every human you encounter is an imperfect representation of whatever they say they stand for. So that is a very, very true statement. <laughs> yeah, and it's very easy to point to a bad example of a person rather than point to the source material that we're all trying to follow, but we all you know, inevitably fall short of because we're, we're fallen. So, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That, that constant, I mean, the, there, there's, there's some sense that I don't think we can really get rid of, nor should we, that, you know, there is some sort of ideal and that we're all imperfect, you know, we, we imperfectly participate in that ideal in some way, you know, right. whether, whether, whether from a Christian perspective or from for that, a platonic perspective or, or any other philosophical outlook that you could. Yeah. Yeah. We've, we've covered a lot of interesting ground there. Well, you know, I, I think it would be great um, to sort of bookmark the possibility of, you know, having a discussion again and, you know, maybe, you know, whether it's one-on-one -on -one or part of a group, um, I'd, I'd definitely love to renew the conversation at some point. That'd so, be wonderful. Well, it's been a beautiful conversation yeah. and I uh, wish you very well on your uh, trip and your continued work and study. And uh, yeah, we we'll look forward to seeing you again. Thanks for listening to this episode of That's So Second Millennium. TSSM's audio producer is Morgan Burkhardt. Our theme music, Igneous Grok, was composed and performed by Vin Marquardt. For my co-host Bill Schmidt, I'm Paul Geesting. Until next time.